Jesus, we do love your presence. And uh, we thank you that you are the word of God, the living word of God. You inhabit our praises. You are here with us this afternoon amongst your people, in your people, residing. And so as we open up your written word now, would you speak to us so clearly? Father, this, this afternoon we want to marvel at you. We want you to fill our vision, just as we have through worship. We want, to, we want to think of nothing else other than your beauty and your perfection. So help us do that. Help us do that. Amen. Okay. In 1975, Hugh Callahan, Patrick Joseph Hill, Gerard Hunter, Richard McElkenny, William Power, and John Walker were tried, found guilty, and sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of 21 people and the injury of 182 others in the Birmingham pub bombings on the 21st of November 1974. They became known as the Birmingham Six. In November 1999, Sally Clark was imprisoned for the murder of her two baby sons, Christopher in 1996 and Harry in 1998, who both died when she was at home alone with them. They died in their beds when they were just a few months old. Between 1999 and 2015, 732 sub-postmasters were convicted of a mixture of offences, including theft, false accounting, and fraud. What have they all got in common? Every single one of those people were wrongly convicted. They represent, between them, some of the most famous or infamous miscarriages of justice that the British legal system has ever seen. All of them are awful cases where the wrongful convictions led to innumerable issues in people's personal lives, led to loss, led to deep hurt, pain, And the system let them down. The system that was there to protect the innocent and convict the guilty let them down. Well, today, we look at the most famous, the most significant miscarriage of justice that the world has ever seen. It's the case of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. It's a familiar story for us, and I think every Easter we kind of roll around to this part of the gospel and read it maybe in our daily Bible readings. It's simply quite easy for us to accept the story. But I want us to remember that it's a huge miscarriage of justice. The man who was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death and then killed is the one person in the whole of history who had absolutely nothing to answer for on any legal measure 
of all time, Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at this story today, and I don't know how we're going to do it, because we're going from John 18, verse 1, to John 19, 16. I hope your dinner will keep. Um, but have the passage open. We're going to dip into it as we go through, and we're going to look at this miscarriage of justice. And that will be a theme that we will uh, come back to time and again, because Jesus was let down by so many people within the system. And as we look at how it unfolds, we're going to introduce some key characters, and we're going to look at how they made agreements with things which led to Jesus being killed. And then, towards the end, we're going to actually follow Pilate's advice. He's one of the characters we'll meet. Because he advises us to behold Jesus. And so we're going to do that. So that's where we're heading. So first character, then, is Judas the betrayer. And uh, in John chapter 18, uh, we see him uh, back on the scene. He'd been around a bit, mentioned in previous passages. But then he comes, and uh, th this whole passage in John 18 starts with Jesus going to the garden. We know it as Gethsemane. And he takes his disciples there. And it was somewhere where Jesus often stayed. In verse 2, it says that uh, Jesus often met there with his disciples. But one of his disciples wasn't present. Judas had come up with his own plans for that night. And in verse 2, we read, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. And Judas, in verse 3, having received the Roman cohort, the soldiers, and the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came to the garden. And so he meets Jesus there. This was a man who was planning evil, who was carrying out evil. And we know that he's been prompted in his heart by the enemy. Satan has filled Judas's heart. And that now bears fruit as he arrives at the garden with his entourage. Judas has somehow managed to unite the Roman authorities and the Jewish ruling authorities together against Jesus. And so he comes with a, a pack of both of them, armed with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Judas, who was betraying him. That's how John describes him in verse 2. And in verse 5, Judas, who was betraying him. I love the fact that Jesus is fully in control. Verse 4, he knows what's going to happen. And when they ask where Jesus is, he reveals himself and they all fall back. They cannot stand under the revelation of who Jesus is. Judas, however, betrays him with a kiss. Judas, the betrayer. So he's our first character. The second character is Simon Peter, the denier. So in verse 10, we meet him. But Simon Peter is one of, I think, the most colourful characters in the New Testament. And there's this caricature of him being first to do everything, first to speak, first to put his foot in it, and so on. So here in verse 10, what does he do? He's got his sword. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. 
and the servant's name was Malchus. That's how to get your name in the Bible, isn't it? Have your ear cut off. Simon Peter, first to stand up and defend Jesus. Let the revolution begin. But his actions were misplaced, weren't they? Like Judas, he totally misunderstood the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And so actually, soon after this, what, swipe with a sword, he runs off. He disappears with the other disciples and abandons Jesus. And notice in verse 15 that he returns. It says Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. I think that that was John who wrote this gospel. And that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. And Peter was at the door outside. And the other disciple went to the high priest and spoke to the doorkeeper and, and brought Peter in. And so he was able to warm himself by the fire. It was an April night. It would have been cold. A bit like last night here. It would have been cold. And so they gather around the fire. And there, Peter is confronted by the scary prospect of a slave girl who says, weren't you this, one of this man's disciples? And of course, Simon denies it. Not only does he deny it to the servant girl, but he denies it to another servant in verse 25 and another one in verses 26 and 27. Three times he denied Jesus. So that's our second character. Judas the betrayer, Simon Peter the denier. The third and fourth characters are Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. Now these two guys represent really the, the ultimate Jewish authorities. Annas was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15. And at that point he was then deposed by the Romans. Annas had five sons. Each of them became topish level priests at some points in their lives. And here in verse 13, we see uh, Annas leads Jesus to Caiaphas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So Annas's five sons are high-level priests, and his son-in-law is a high priest. And no one can really explain kind of what's going on here, because it seems there are two high priests. They're both described as high priests and so on. But the most plausible thing that I've come across, really, is that Caiaphas was the official high priest, recognized by Rome. After, after Annas was kicked out of office, Caiaphas then became the high priest. But <laughs> the Jews wouldn't have recognized the fact that Annas had been removed from office by the Romans. And so the Jewish ruling authority still recognized Annas. And therefore, that's why Jesus was taken to Annas, first of all, where he tried him, judged him, and then sent him to Caiaphas, and we read that it's Caiaphas who then takes him to the Roman authorities because that was the recognized Roman authority. That's what I think is the most plausible anyway. But what we really see is that these two high priests in verse 24 bind Jesus. So Anna sent him, Jesus, bound 
to Caiaphas, the high priest. Wow. The high priest of God is bound by these two. And then they take him and deliver him over to the Roman authorities in verse 28. They led him from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. And it was early in the morning. So that's our third and fourth characters, Annas and Caiaphas. And our fourth or fifth, depending how you're counting these, um, is Pilate, who is the governor. <coughs> Jesus endured two Roman trials, we read of. One with Pilate and one with Herod. John only talks about the one with Pilate. So that's the one I'm going to focus on. So who was Pilate? Well, he was governor of Judea from about AD 26 to AD 35. And the events when Jesus was kind of being crucified were around AD 30-ish. So in the middle of his kind of reign as governor. And usually he spent his time up in Caesarea. And uh, he came to Jerusalem really for the Passover feast. And when he was in Jerusalem, he used to stay at the Praetorium, which was Herod the Great. He was a nasty old piece of work. But anyway, it was in his old palace. Well, you'll remember him from Jesus being born where he slaughtered the innocents. So that's Herod the Great. So he's staying in, in the Praetorium there. And so the high priests bring Jesus to the Praetorium, to Pilate, to be tried. Now usually, and some of you might like the, the sound of this, but usually Roman officials, uh, like Pilate, only worked from early in the morning till about noon. And then they, I don't know, went home for bargain hunt or something. But, um, but that was their working day. Can you tell I've been at home too much in the last couple of years? Anyway, um, but it's worth noting in verse 28 that the high priest led Jesus to the praetorium. It was early in the morning. They themselves didn't enter into the praetorium so they wouldn't be defiled because they wanted to eat the Passover meal. We'll come back to that later. But what it means is, is that we have this kind of bizarrely comedic scene then happens where you've got Pilate inside the praetorium and you've got the chief priests outside the praetorium and Jesus is inside with Pilate so in verse 29 we see Pilate coming out and asking the Jewish uh, rulers what charges are you bringing against him? And so they lay out the charges. And so he trots off in verse 33 back inside and he speaks to Jesus and asks him a few questions like, are you king of the Jews? Are you really a king? What kind of king are you? What is truth? It's a fascinating question. After he's got his answers or hasn't from those, from Jesus. He then says in verse 38, he goes out again to the Jews and says, I don't find any guilt in him. And they say, well, that's not good enough because actually we'd quite like to kill him. And so Pilate then goes back into Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 19, scourges him, so whips him. Um, and then in verse 4, it says Pilate came out again. So the Jews are still outside. And this time he comes out with Jesus in verse 5, wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate says, behold the man. The Jews say, well, he's claiming to be the son of God, which worries Pilate a bit. 
So he goes back inside with Jesus in verse 9 um, and then says, so where are you really from? And trying to work out who this man is. He still can't find anything that warrants the death of Jesus. And so in verse 13, it says, when Pilate heard these words, he again brings Jesus back out. So you can see this toing and froing going on. He brings him back out. And this time, Pilate sits down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, which in Hebrew is Gabbatha. And he makes his final judgment. We see Pilate oscillating between inside and outside throughout this. It's a ridiculous scenario. And then he declares Jesus to be king. Behold your king, he says in verse 14. The Jews are still not happy. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they pledge their allegiance to Caesar and say, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate makes the wrong call. The injustice, the miscarriage of justice is set in motion and he hands him over in verse 16 to be crucified. That's the story. Five characters, each of them playing their part in these final hours of Jesus' life. And each of those characters actually makes an agreement with something as they interact with Jesus. And they choose to align themselves with something else. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look back at each of the five characters in turn and see what they make agreements with. And as we do that, we're going to follow this advice that Pilate gives. Behold the man. Behold your king, he says. So we're going to do that. We're going to contrast each of them with Jesus. So let's go back to Judas then, the betrayer. Well, he makes an agreement with darkness. Satan enters his heart. He left the Last Supper, you'll remember, and he went out and John says, and it was night. Judas worked in the shadows, worked in the darkness, bringing together a group of soldiers and a group of high priestly bodyguards to arrest Jesus. And in that darkness, he identified the one to be arrested by giving him a kiss, a kiss of a friend. Judas acted in the shadows. He made a pact, an agreement with the devil. He allowed Satan to rule his heart. And as this was coming to a climax, as Jesus was crucified, he said, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. But when we look at Jesus, well, what's the first thing that God does in the whole of the Bible? He says, let there be light. This is not a God who deals in darkness and shadows. This is a God who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. James writes, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow 
or turning. When we look at Jesus, we see that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus, we know, is the light of the world. And so when we behold Jesus, when we look upon him, when we gaze upon him and come into his presence, we enter into the light. And darkness has to go. So are you like Judas? Are you making agreements with darkness at the moment? Are you living in the shadows? Are there areas of your life where the light is not shining? Secret sin, lust, greed, pornography, envy. What goes on in the shadows? Let me urge you this afternoon to emerge into the light of your Saviour and behold Jesus, the true light, the radiance of the Father's glory, because in his light we see light. The second character was Simon Peter, the denier. He too makes an agreement. He makes an agreement with fear. We see him standing for a while alongside Jesus, but then that abandonment that we talked about, the fickleness because of fear. He's courageous with his sword in his hand in a dark garden, but he then melts before a servant girl next to a fire. The fear of being exposed takes hold. He doesn't want to be associated with Jesus. And three times, at least, he allows fear to dominate his thinking. And it would be a long road back for him. But there would be a road back for him after the resurrection. And so he goes from bravely defending his friend to denying that he ever knew him. And look at Jesus in contrast. In contrast to the fickleness of Simon Peter, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In contrast to the abandonment of Simon Peter and the other disciples, Jesus promises, I will be with you always. Jesus, you see, remains faithful. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know now that we need never be at a distance ever again, because now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through him, we have access to the Father by one spirit. In spite of what Jesus was facing, he never allowed fear to dominate his thinking. He never made an agreement with fear. So are you making an agreement with fear at the moment? Does watching the news fill you with dread? The situation with rising COVID numbers again. The situation with the rising cost of food. The situations with conflict around the globe, be it Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Ukraine. The situation with the cost of living rising. 
fuel prices going through the roof? Are you making agreements to fear those things? Allowing them to come in and dominate your thinking and your decision making? Let me encourage you this afternoon to step away from fear and step into the presence of Jesus. Because when we behold Jesus, fear dissipates, disappears. It's not that the situations are gone, it's just we're able to deal with them in the light of Jesus. You see, when we draw near to gaze upon Jesus, what we encounter is love, true love, high, wide, long, deep love. And we know that perfect love casts out fear. And so therefore, any agreement we have with fear can be broken off in the light of his love. The third characters were the high priests. They made an agreement. Their agreement was with falsehood. False testimony they allowed in that trial. False religion was what they promoted across Israel. You see, these two were meant to uphold God's perfect law. Keeping God's law was an expression of love for God, and that's what they were meant to be promoting. That's what they were meant to be um, <coughs> helping the nation live like. But instead, what they promoted was a heavy legalism a false interpretation of God's laws. And it placed people under condemnation. Theirs was a religion that ticked the box instead of transformed the heart. Their false religion bound people. The regulations tied people up in knots. And the lack of grace that they demonstrated led people into slavery. You see, the Pharisees and the religious rulers were experts in weighing people down with the law, making them carry more than they were able to carry. And so Jesus said to them, Woe to you who pay a tithe of mint and rue and every garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. For you weigh men down with burdens that are hard to bear. And this approach to the law, this approach to religion led to the high priests agreeing with falsehood time and again, placing burdens on people and ultimately binding the word of God, Jesus. And what resulted was an adherence to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. They wanted to be seen to be doing everything right, crossing every T, dotting every I, but actually they had their own agenda, which we see on display in this passage. And so they're prepared to actually break their own law, which they're so proud of keeping. They are prepared to collude with people who are willing to lie against Jesus. They were prepared to meet at night, which they weren't allowed to do. That was prohibited. And they broke the law there. And then they got together early in the morning to rubber stamp the decision so it had the appearance of legality. And they were prepared to offer Jesus over to the authorities to be crucified. 
while they remain outside in the appearance of holiness, not tainting themselves by going into a Gentile building so that the real Passover lamb would be killed while they were still able to celebrate their sham Passover. It's all about appearances. Never touches the heart. All false religion. And ultimately, they're willing to take it to the ultimate and condemn an innocent man. But alongside them, we look at Jesus. You see, false religion makes people slaves. But Jesus is the truth, and he brings freedom. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life, and the truth sets us free. We're actually called to freedom. We're not just made free, we're called to freedom, says Paul in Galatians. And for those of us, for those who are carrying the heavy burden of false religion, Jesus says, come aside with me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. These high priests are false shepherds who weigh people down, but Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. The high priests thought they were keeping the law, but actually it was Jesus who said, I fulfill the law and the prophets. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So we have obeyed the law because of what Jesus did. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, and he took it away, nailing it to a cross. That's what Jesus did. That's what the true high priest does. No agreements with lies and falsehood. So are you making agreements with lies and falsehood at the moment? What have you been saying to yourself this last week? What things have you been telling yourself? What lies have you been believing, allowing in and entertaining? What falsehoods have others spoken over you that you've gone, yeah, probably is right. Let me encourage you to step away, step away from the lies, step away from the falseness and come to Jesus because there in the light of him, in the light of the truth, we encounter perfect truth and the truth sets us free. So any agreements with lies can be broken off. So we've had an agreement with darkness, we've had an agreement with fear, we've had an agreement with falsehood. And now we see Pilate, the governor, making an agreement with injustice. As we said earlier, we've got this whole scene of Pilate oscillating between inside and outside. From the falsehood of the chief priests to the truth of Jesus. From the fear of man on the outside to the fear of God that he knows there's something there on the inside. From political expediency on the outside to doing the right thing on the inside. From the judgment of Caesar on the outside to the judgment of God on the inside. And ultimately he chooses the wrong side. In verse 38 he asks what is truth to the one who is the way, the truth and the life. But he doesn't wait for an answer. He just leaves and walks back outside to speak to the Jews. 
He has the appearance of seeking the truth, but actually he's just casting around, hoping to protect his pr position, protect his privilege, and please everyone somehow. He says the right things, but he lacks conviction. So in verse 38, he says, I find no guilt in him. Surely it should be story end there. Surely. This is a man who is applying the law. But instead, I find no guilt in him, so I'll hand him over to soldiers to mock him and scourge him, to put a crown of thorns rammed on his head, to put a cloak on him, to beat him. In verse 4, he then brings him out and he says, look, I've scourged him, but I find no guilt in him. But even then, what happens? Well, they say, crucify him, crucify him. And he says, okay, you go and crucify him then. There's no guilt in this man. And in verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Wow. An innocent man, no guilt in him, and now efforts are being made to release him. But actually, he ended up killing him, not releasing him. Instead of upholding the law and justice, he agrees with the falseness and lies of the high priests. And he condemns this innocent man. Like we said at the start, the greatest miscarriage of justice ever. But look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Pilate should have been on the side of righteousness and justice, but he wasn't. And Jesus, in contrast, intercedes for us. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Pilate should have been advocating for the innocent man who he's found no guilt in. Jesus does that for us. Jesus is righteous and just, and he brings justice and peace and righteousness. Pilate says, behold your king. The king who is ushering in a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Let me read to you from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit in him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. What will he do then? Well, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. He is the long-awaited, righteous, perfect king that Psalm 72 talks about. So are you making agreements with injustice at the moment? What injustice have you turned a blind eye to recently? Maybe you know about an exploitative practice that's going on that you haven't yet spoken out about. 
Maybe you see that there's a favoritism in your family that is destroying relationships, eating away like a cancer. And you know you need to say something, but at the moment you're siding with the injustice. Maybe there's a colleague in a difficult situation that you haven't spoken out for yet, or a business practice which you know is unfair because it takes advantage of someone. Maybe it's that you know that there's someone who needs an advocate, but you haven't yet been that person. What injustice is God speaking to you about at the moment? Let me encourage you to step away from injustice and step into the presence of Jesus the righteous. When we behold Jesus, injustice can't last. When we draw near to gaze upon Jesus, we encounter the perfect judge, the perfect ruler, and the perfect king. For this child has been born to us, this son was given to us, and the government now rests on his shoulders, and his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And so the perfection of him. This was the man who was killed for us. This was the man who died for us. Perfection itself. Perfection personified. And my prayer for this afternoon is that Jesus will fill our vision. Because when we look around, these characters that we read in the story, they are still around today. People who are prepared to entertain darkness, who are prepared to live with falsehood and lies, who are prepared to perpetuate injustice, who are prepared to deal with fear and live in fear. They're still around. And yet, in the light of Jesus, they hold no power over us because our Saviour reigns. So Jesus, our prayer this afternoon, just as it was all through our worship time where you were magnified, just as it's been as we've looked at all these different characters and yet they pale away into insignificance in comparison to you, the Passover lamb, the willing sacrifice for our sins. We pray that you would fill our vision. God, as we behold you, Jesus, would you fill our vision? As we share this bread and wine together, would you reveal yourself afresh to us? May we fall ever deeper in love with you, our saviour and our friend. Jesus is the light who disperses our darkness. Jesus is the faithful one who deals with our fear. Jesus is the truth who lifts our burdens and brings us freedom. 
Jesus is the righteous who saves us from injustice.